kia tūhono te pono me te tika. Let truth and justice be joined. E nā iwi, e nā hapu, e nā kārangaranga maha o te motu, no mai haere mai ki te hōtaka nei a te ahikā. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justin Murray, and you're with Te Ahikā here on Radio New Zealand National. Next week, as part of the International Arts Festival, an opera opens that's set in 1840s New Zealand and has led to Deborah Kapohe and Philip Rhodes questioning their knowledge of New Zealand history. You know, I mean, I think about the so-called heroes, George Grey. Uh, you know, he's one. He's one of the antagonists of this opera, and and a big one at that. And uh, the uh, you know the likes of Samuel Marsden and all these people that we sort of celebrate. And I think, why? Why mm. do we? And mm. why do we villainize? You know, Tiroparaha. Why oh, do we sort of? You know, why? Mm. So yeah. so it's um yeah it's uh, it's it's eye opening. Deborah Kapohe and Philip Rhodes coming up later on in the show. And we kicked off our series Nga Marae o Te Motu last week. This week we're with Bruce Stewart at Taputiranga Marae, Wellington. And all these years uh, I've been going, um, hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of people, 14,000 a year come through our marae. That's what's coming up on Tiahika in the next wee while. Kia mau tonu mai. Being a fish out of water is how I would describe myself when I first came to Wellington. New people, new places, and a whole lot of acclimatising to do. And that was only four years ago, yep. Justine. Well, imagine it's the 1950s. You're 18 years old, and Te Reo Māori is your first language, and you get an idea of what it was like for Ruatahuna bred Mili Hawiki. So you came down to Wellington in 1953? Yeah, yeah, I came to Wellington in 1953. But I came down, the church brought me down for some other purpose. But because there was hardly any Māoris that could speak Māori, I got involved with certain places mm. just because of the reo. And how did the reo Māori help you in that way? Because um, you could call it all to uh, people yeah, in their own yeah. language? Aye, aye. Mm. And sometimes our, some of our people used to come down and I used to meet them and I talked to them in Wellington. Were you brought up? Were you a native speaker? Really? Aye. Yeah, I was brought up. Māori was your speaker, first language. I couldn't speak English properly when I came down. How old were you when you came down to Wellington? Eh? How old were you when you came down I to Wellington? I think I was 18. 18. <coughs> and I was 24 when I got married. What was it like being a Māori warden at the time at such a young age? It was... I found it hard... Because I didn't see anybody. They used to drink, but I never saw fights or anything like that. And when I came down, started going to the pubs, that's what I saw. And the first time I walked through the pub, my hair stood on end and I could hardly... And all these people looking at you, I was terrified. How did you overcome how did you get through that? Well, how I overcome it, I was told to keep going, but I used to go with a, with quite a few. Mm. 
there was a few of us. But what they used to do was they, when we walk in, they open the door and push me in first, and everybody <laughs> will turn around and look at me. They it just you used in to, first. They always push me in first. They say, you walk in first, and I would never clue what I'm... And I couldn't see the people. There was too many. How long were you a warden? I'm still one. You're still a warden? I'm still one, yep. Gosh. I'm a life member. You don't... You're not I on don't active... Really, I only go to Marais or certain places, but I don't go out on the street anymore. For a young girl from Ruata who now come in here to Pōneke, very much the city city life, that must have been quite quite scary. It was. It, was, was, it took me a, quite a while to get used... I had to get used to the people and into the town and buses and things like that. Most times I walked or I biked to work. <laughs> I leave an hour early to get there. Tell me an example, Millie, if you can, um, when you've approached somebody, say a Māori person in a pub and you've used te reo, what would you say to them, iro te reo? <clears throat> When I go up to them, I will say, Kia ora. Usually, Kamata, where are you from? And when I know where they're from, then I can talk to them. That's always my thing. Where do you come from? And you've got to sort of be lipped in with them, not sort of, because you've got a uniform on, some people sort of think back at you. So you've got to come down to there and not thing with your uniform. Just be a person and talk. A lot of them won't talk back to you if you approach them differently because of their uniform. And some people, when they've got the uniform, they sort of have that authority and they keep it and people won't come up to you. In terms of our Māori wardens, um, do you think we need Māori wardens? <coughs> I still think we need Māori wardens, but to do different things, not like what we used to do. I'm not sure whether we can uh, for the purpose of our children. At nine and ten, they're on drugs or they're used to, to deliver drugs. Nine and ten, they're used to deliver drugs. And at, at the colleges, they get used to deliver it. So I'm not sure whether it's Māori Warden's job, but for me, that's the only way we can get in touch with our children, be Māori for our Māori. Mm-hmm. Do Māori Wardens, do you think they're appropriately resourced and, and No, they're not. They're not resourced. I was a Māori Warden. All. I've never, ever got anything because it's voluntary. You don't expect anything. Kia ora, Millie. Kia ora, Motena. Millie, how are you? No, tuhoi. Te Aika Radio New Zealand National. If you've been educated through the New Zealand schooling system at some stage, you've encountered the names William Hobson, James Busby. And George Gray. It's likely if you've driven through towns along streets and parked up alongside parks and monuments named in their honour. 
what about Hohepa Te Umurua? Exactly. Well, that's about to change with an opera composed by Jenny McLeod premiering at the International Festival of Arts next week. Six feet tall, with an incomplete moko on the side of his face, is how Ngāti Hau Te Ati Haunui Apaparangi Rangatira has been described, and it's his friendship with Quaker couple Jane and Thomas Mason in the 1840s that provided the impetus for the story. That starts in Whanganui, heads to what we know as the Hutt Valley today, and ends in Tasmania. Mariah met with the leads Deborah Kapohe and Philip Rhodes earlier this week. My focus is definitely to the law and working in law and if it, singing can fit around it. I mean, you have to fit singing around law because law is a very difficult and at times unhealthy profession. So you need that balance. So that's more the focus has shifted. Because I've always wanted to be a lawyer longer than I wanted to be a singer. But singing took the focus. Mm. So that's how And I'd you're say. tiny. <laughs> You're absolutely tiny. Oh, thank you. Well, look at us both. Because, you know, I lost 22 kgs when I was 35. How much have you lost? Uh, Since we started rehearsal, I've lost 13 kgs. Since you started rehearsal and you lost Mm. a bit before Well, we started three months ago. So if you want to get skinny, take up opera as a career? No. 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 No, No, take up discipline as a career. Yes. (laughs) Take up discipline and meet some friends that have got professional rugby contracts. (laughs) Mm. You've been very disciplined, haven't you, with your exercise? Same with me for my 22 kgs, diet and exercise. Yeah, it is diet, exercise. Did it change the way that your voice has sounded? Uh, It has, actually. Uh, Well, the way it feels, not so much the way it sounds. Um, The way the the vibrations and that go around your body, it feels different and it feels like you're not making as much sound. But um, I've been lucky that I've had some people around I trust that they're saying, oh, the voice still sounds oh, the, the same. Voice is beautiful. You know? Philip's voice is beautiful. It's absolutely just top class. It's, oh, shut oh up, come man. on. It's an absolutely <laughs> magnificent instrument. As many Māori voices are, I'll be honest with yeah. you. It's, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, isn't it? It's a. Yeah, I've just been back home and. and you know, so that's back up to Hawke's Bay? Back to Hawke's Bay, yeah. Unfortunately for a tangi of, of an uncle of mine that was um, always very encouraging of, of um, Māoris and music and he, he used to play the old instruments and was uh, very focused on his on his uh, Māori tikanga and, and he had, um, you know, he had these young men at, at his funeral that were inspired by him singing and the voices were just absolutely stunning, you know, and I thought, mm. I can't remember hearing these voices growing up mm. and I think they've been influenced by the sound of our of our old instruments and there's something that comes through in the way they sing now. It's something that I don't possess because I never grew up with it. But, um, you know, th- there is a, an amazing sound that belong- that sort of belongs to, to people. And I guess it's a, the same around the world that the Italians possess a sound that belongs to them yes. and that's why they can do the opera the way they do, you mm. know, and the English possess a sound that belongs to them. And, yes. And, um, you know, Oh, yeah, no, it's, people have to come to hear Philip's voice because, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a masculine, beautifully focused, beautifully placed voice. And it, I think it, it also, it, it should be set as a precedent for how a Māori man can sing. You know, it's a masculine, fully physical activity. Full on. Huh? I mean, you're just working your hoodie off. <laughs> oh, it's hard work, there's hard no work. doubt. But I've, you know, skinny in the process. Oh, I've yeah. been away for, for three years, and I put that down to the to the um, work I did in, in Cardiff uh, with Dennis O'Neill and, and just, you know, had an opportunity with the 
with Dame of, uh, with Dame Kerry's foundation to just focus on singing and and um, you know, just not have to worry about making ends meet and and just go to school, work on singing and and have to have the discipline to do that. And because uh, yeah, you know, if I was to think of Maori opera singers. God, is that even a word, a phrase? I would think of Enia Tewiata, yeah. mm, you, and Kawati Waitford. Oh, Dame Kerry as well. Oh, She's no, big time. male. Oh, male, males, male, yeah. Yes. So that's three. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and well, you I mean, and Kawati are, and you. Yeah, there are a few <laughs> that have, you know, there are a few I can that I can think of that I, you know, sort of admired coming up and the likes of uh, Brandon Poe and and yes. um, uh, Zane Tewiramu Zavis and, yeah. and Robert um, Robert yeah, Wiramu and yes. you know, a lot of fantastic voices and William Winnie Tana, all of these names. But uh, I think they were sort of, they've been pulled in different directions. And this happens with lots of opera singers. That, I mean, Deborah with, with her law as well. Yes. You know, this, you, you sort of, um, I think after, after a while the... You, you find out what the singing is really about, and you find out whether it's for you or not. And and um, it's it's a it's a tough life to choose. It's not a romantic life at all. Once you get into the no. into the work of it, and um, and I think yeah, a lot of we've got a lot of great talent, Maori men that can yes. that can make it in this world. But but you know, I think get to a stage and decide it's it's not for them. Yeah. Just being away from home. I mean, it's a long way, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny that uh, we sort of put in the bracket as islanders, but we we tend to not want to move anywhere, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, it's it's been hard. Even I think about the three years I've been away. In that first year, I pined to come home, and um, I had to stay away for that year in order to to realise that yeah, I can do it away from home, and and not much is going to change, and and home will always be there. So that was. You know, it's it's quite tough to get to that stage, and you know, I, th- I think I, I always dreamed about it as a young fella as well, and um, you know, so so it's it's something that that has helped me push through that that aching of wanting to be in New Zealand with your family. So, well, Deborah, you have stayed in New Zealand. Mm, I have. I've never wanted to go overseas. I always has it been I... tempting? No. And in order to grow your operatic well, career? Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I trained in London. I went to Australia for a number of years and performed there and, you know, in Asian things. But, no, I've always wanted to be here. I, I love this place. And a lot of the, the teachers that come here bring their skills with them. I mean, mm. we're so lucky. Do you find that it's limiting when it comes to wanting to perform an opera because you've chosen to yes. remain in Aotearoa? It's it's more that I had to become more diverse. I couldn't really specialise in what I should be specialising in, which is? which is Mozart and Puccini, like Puccini. That's that's really mm. what I should be doing. And if I'd just done that, by now we would have been hearing some fantastic lyrical singing from me. But <laughs> but as it is, I've been diverse, and my technique suffered because of that. But at the same time, I've had rich musical experiences and I'm I'm where I want to be which is New Zealand and Mm. and you've got a family I've got a family yes husband and two fantastic kids that are just thriving Um, for me it was always about a balance and uh, I knew that I couldn't have that balance if I left New Zealand now you were saying that you've acted Asian roles 
Oh, well, yes. I mean, I performed in Asia, opera in, you know, European opera mm-hmm. in Asia. So, you know, this is always the Cliff Curtis question, you know, how he ends up playing a <laughs> yeah, yeah, Puerto Rican, yeah. Yeah. Arab, yeah. Uh, different <laughs> things. I mean, have you two found that too? Whenever you've performed, you've ended up playing things other than Māori. Well, yeah, this is a, a rare occasion, other than the, the last time we were here together working on the trial of the cannibal dog, that um, we got get to play a Māori. And, um, you know, it's a great opportunity to take advantage of that as well because it's, um, you know, I'm always playing in Italian or, mm-hmm. you know, um, well, uh, Spanish mm-hmm. or, yeah. you know, and, um, yeah, it's, it's a great opportunity to, to, to bask in our own culture a wee bit. And how is it? Because you're both in Hohipa. You're playing a wife and a husband. Yes. Yep. yep. Um, well, it's it's great, it's a great actually. Story. Yeah. Tell well, me the got... story. The story's great. Well, uh, well, do you want to take it, Deb? Do you want to? Oh gosh. Well, I, I haven't digested a lot of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that terrible? Because I because <laughs> you're focusing on singing. Yeah. It's like, oh, what note next? <laughs> Oh, gosh, to me, I tend to look at the big picture of it because of my interest in the law and my passion for justice Mm. and that elusive justice. (laughs) Um, I tend to look at the story and think, wow, Jenny's portrayed a society where the justice system wasn't developed. I mean, Māori justice was. Māori had a fantastic legal system. In fact, that's what I've been doing research in over the last year is this amazing legal system. And, of course, Pākehā have a fabulous legal system. We're very lucky to have had a, a, a colonisation process with a country with mm. a good justice system. Oh, I don't know if lucky would be the right word there, <laughs> I guess, yeah. It, it could have been a lot worse, you know what I mean? Even though the courts, in the end, cost a lot of money, at least we've got some way of redressing problems. Not just big problems, not just land problems. Also, you know, individual problems... Um, on day-to-day level, but anyway, to get back to the the thing, I tend to see this opera as justice wasn't done. Someone was treated very unfairly, um, it, and people tended, acted above the rule of law. Tended to move quite far away from that idea of um, of Victoria's sort of age of enlightenment to, mm. to you know being the New Zealand being so far away from where justice was held, and yeah. and so many armies and you know people in charge being sent out to. To just run amok, really, and um, and take what they wanted, and take what they could, and and um, you know tell the people back in England that hey, everything's honky dory, and uh, you know there's not a problem here. But in the meantime, mm-hmm. people were suffering, and on both sides, Pākehā and Māori, yes. they were suffering. Um, and into this enters a little Quaker man called Thomas. Yes. Yeah, he he does. Uh, Thomas <laughs> yeah. Mason arrives in New Zealand, and um, he, he's befriended by Hohepa and Terai, uh, and and they you know they build up quite a bond. But um, you know, as as Thomas and and Jane Mason develop their property, around them more and more land has been taken off the Maori um, by by the com- you know surveying companies, and um, you know they're they're stuck in the middle of this a wee bit, trying to keep the peace, and uh, you know a, a tricky position for him to be in, uh, uh, and you know Hohepa tries to warn him in a way to say you know look. The Maori are going to kill you, or the or the whites are going to kill you. It's one one or the other, you know. Um, and and Thomas is really sort of he's stuck in that rut. Mm, mm. Meanwhile, Hohep is sent off to Tasmania to languish and die over there. Yeah, well, yeah, Hohep. You know, after after Thomas Mason um, leaves, because he senses that a, a big war is kept coming between the settlers and the and the Maori, and um, so he and his wife. 
up and out of New Zealand um, like uh, like a lot of Kiwis <laughs> these days, take off to Australia for, yes. for better work and better pay. Um, but he, uh, you know, and and the Māori and, and the settlers in the Sopra, they, they do go to war and um, uh, there are a lot of atrocities on both sides, you know, a lot of uh, well, murder, it's out-and-out out murder yeah. and treachery and, and um, you know, a story that that I was unaware of until you know until Jenny brought it to the to the opera company really to say yes. look at this you know look at something that's been swept under the carpet and and as I talk to other people I think well there's an you know I hear more stories that well just why didn't they talk about that why didn't they talk about um you know why why in why in history wasn't I ever taught about Tikuti or Tero Paraha or you know mm. why did I have to wait until I sat with my elders to hear about these things because they're Fanta- not only fantastic stories, That's but stories right. that are filled with, with that uh, that we should be proud of. And um, in a funny way, for Māori, pride has been taken away from them. And um, mm. I think that's uh, the result is a, a lot of the trouble we see today with people. Is it a bit know? like, um, I mean, I came through the same education system. Is it a bit like you, you're getting um, told historical fact on a certain from a certain angle yeah and then as you start to learn more you find your position shifting and then you're starting to go well it's it's a wee bit to the victors go the spoils isn't it and you know Mm. those who win the wars write the stories so you know i mean i think about the so-called heroes george gray uh you know he's one he's one of the antagonists of this opera and and a big one at that and uh the uh, you know the likes of Samuel Marsden and all these people that we sort of celebrate, and I think why, why mm. do we, and mm. why do we villainize you know Te Paraha? Why oh, do we sort of you know why? Mm. So yeah. so it's um yeah it's uh, it's it's eye opening in a way. Oh yeah yeah I, I was actually chatting with another one of the opera singers on the way to the interview because we were passing the Supreme Court and. Um, you know, I was sort of waffling away as I do about justice, and I don't understand why New Zealand doesn't have a program where we are legally educated from the beginning of our school years. And I think that it may have a, something to do with the to the victor goes the spoils mm. um, again, is that by educating everybody in New Zealand about what the law is, um, they would suddenly become empowered because knowledge is power. And at the moment, it's held by a select few. It still is mm. held by a select few. There are very few Māori lawyers out there to help people. Mm with the continuing injustices. And I'm not just talking about big things. I think New Zealand tends to look at the big things, but sometimes it doesn't look at the little things. You know, do Māori go to civil justice to Mm. get their normal rights looked at? You know, why are there so few going through the civil justice system? And it's Mm. overrepresented in the criminal justice, and we tend to look at that overrepresentation in the criminal without looking at the underrepresentation in the civil. And I think that this this story actually, what happened in Hōhepa is still carrying on. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, he's... The story's true. Do you feel a sense of responsibility... And portraying it, I mean, this is the first time it's going to premiere. Yeah, absolutely, and and um, you know there are there have been during the the process of building building this in where um, the belief in it hasn't been a hundred percent, and and there have been little fights in amongst the, the you know the directing the 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 sort of the music and mm. all these things to just sort of because in you know if something doesn't feel right inside, you feel a duty to to Hohepa to his his you know to his family that are here today that will come to this opera and, and you feel yes. a duty to to 
give to them something that they can take away, you know, something yes. that they will take away for the rest of their lives probably and say, well, that was our, that was our ancestor and he, you know. Well, that's what we we're getting the family. They're watching Philip and everyone. Uh, the busloads are coming down from Whanganui. They are, they are. They're coming yes. in the busloads. And I can tell people that, that want to come in op- and hear the opera, they're going to hear the words. Yeah, I yeah. mean, Philip's diction is absolutely incredible, and uh, Nikki Spence, who's playing the Quaker. Yeah, they've done a great job um, of filling up the cast, and don't leave yourself out, Deborah, but they've, uh, they've done a great um, job. Sarah, had, you know, mm. hunted her, headhunted her cast in a way, and that um, she wanted people that that not only sang very well and clearly, but could perform the roles that that were written um, because it's going to take that to carry this opera over because there's uh, a lot of time spread, you know, over the the opera is told over 150 years. And, um, you know, we don't have the the budget of Peter Jackson to sort of (laughs) open a trilogy of it. So, so, you know, it's it's very fast-paced. And and, um, so, so, so Sarah has had to hunt out a fit... Um, well, smooth looking and yes. um, and yes. uh, you know well groomed sort of cast to to pull this off and you know Jonathan Lamalu who's who's one of our New Zealand heroes you know oh, he's, yes. he's certainly making a big name for himself and and mm. he's come back to do this and and you know I'm grateful as a young singer coming up to that that I could work alongside him and watch what he's doing and you know such a such a fabulous performer and, and artist and it, you know. I think just his name on the on the board alone will pull a lot of punters, but you know oh. they'll really get to see a sto- a New Zealand story, a true New Zealand story, um, told with a lot of uh, ihi. I'm Debbie Carpohe, and I'm born in Winton. Uh, grew up in Invercargill, and educated at Auckland University and Sydney University. Ah, uh, Ngati Kahumanu is my iwi. Although I've just found out my grandmother is from Jerusalem. Yeah, her name was Piki. Taputoro, and my dad grew up along the, the river. He was born in Wairoa, but he actually grew up along the river. Kia ora. My name is Philip Rhodes. I'm from uh, Ngāti Kahungununu and uh, also Ngāti Awa. Um, uh, grew up in the, in the mighty Hawke's Bay, now living in Wales. Singing is what I do. Now, I saw a video, and it had um, somebody talking in there about a haka that's done in English. So, well, I don't it's, know uh, what it is. I think Jenny had intended it to be a chant originally, and um, you know, sort of, um, we'd been making jokes about it being a parkie haka, and uh, you know, all these sorts of things. And um, but we've, uh, and it was really tough to uh, throw yourself into it because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, first of all, it's tough. It's tough enough to be up there as opera singers and trying to be the embodiment yes. of Maoridom. And then to have to do it in English, um, you know, and and some of the words in English, you just think, oh, well, these, you know, yeah. how are we going to sell this? But we've got a great team from Te Wakahuia and, um, you know, led by Ngarino Watt and, um, and Te Kuruteua, who, who have just lifted it to a whole new level and made it what it was supposed to be. Uh, really, and and Jenny yesterday sat and watched us. We spent uh, an extra sort of hour yeah. working it out because it just uh, hadn't, you know, it wasn't. Everybody looking. else had gone, but we yeah. all the Maori decided, um, or anyone who was yeah. acting a Maori character had to we... stay and, and work this out, and and mm. you know, just I guess just be given permission to believe in it a bit more, and and you know, raise the stakes a little bit, yeah. and um, you know, well, Jenny was almost. 
Ginny was was she was really moved by what we what we've done to it, and it, mm. she I think she could see yes, this is what I intended, and that was great for for all of us, really. But it's what you're touching on the whole thing that um, translating words into English, so some. T- in translating Te Reo Māori into English, you can lose the the ihi of something. It's, it feels like yeah, you're taking away the mana of the reo. Yeah, it does. The, and so like there can be an embarrassment attached to that. Yeah, it happens. It happens not only with this haka, but when I don't, I don't know if you did, but whenever I've I've done an an, an opera that was written in Italian, but then tran- translated to English, <laughs> you know, translated to English, it's just felt completely wrong. You know, really feels horrible, and you just, I mean, I I, uh, yeah, I right. know that's what we, it's around the world we do it yeah, and people right. enjoy it, but to me it just feels absolutely yeah. horrible, and it felt the same way, you know, the sort of chanting, you know, Quika was murdered, and it just it felt <laughs> like that, you know, it felt like that, but we'd been, give, you know, we hadn't been given the tools I'm until. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but I mean that's how it was. That's how it was before it was like yesterday. Yeah. If you said "kamate, kamate, kamate, kamate," the death, the death, the life, the life. I mean, it just but it was also mind. also separating ourselves from the from the Pākehā inflections, you know. Oh, right, so making we up Māori. was murdered, you know, this sort of, you know, all this sort of, we, we as an English speaker, I thought, what, how, what, how am I going to separate myself from this to, to make and it like a, a, a chant? And then Māori boy from Hastings, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, it is a bit, there was a bit of that. But, um, you know, the, the, the um, Te Wakahui got, got in and, and just got in our ear and said, look, you know, and and had to, we almost had to say, look, if we change these words to Maori, and then you chant them to us, and you do them as a as a Maori haka, we get the authentic sound, and that's what started to happen yesterday. You know, we got the authentic mm, sound, and the, to, yeah. the girls up the octave, you know, yeah, really sort of wailing, and and yeah. uh, you know, really started to take a whole new life. Yeah, so. yeah. It was yesterday. I said, oh, can I give it a go? And my voice was shredded, eh, by the end of one go through. Well, even even some of our less some of our less manly men being told to sort of you know really sort of uh, get down on their haunches and poke their tongue out and roll their eyes back and uh, you know really sort of uh, just being given permission be a Maori. You know, there's no there's no act of Maori. It's just be, let it be. Because sometimes uh, it can be hard to carry your taha Māori into very Pākehā settings. Yeah, and that, oh, it can be very difficult. Well, that's been the barrier we've had to break down all the time through this opera, you know, that... I've well, had to break a... that barrier down through my whole career. Yeah. And now the sudden, bring it back, I don't know where it is anymore. <laughs> you know, that's so a... how's that been? Well, I mean, I spent my whole life... Suppressing your taha Māori. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And now all of a sudden I've got to find it. It's like, what? (laughs) I don't know if I can. Mm, But it's so great when you start digging. It must be very liberating to feel that you can, it's safe to bring it out now. Yeah, well, I'm not there yet, but part of me can't be fully there because I know I've got a whole opera to sing. Mm -mm. Got a... That fine balance. Yeah, there there is a tricky balance that you take because um, you know there's, there's a different way of uh, a very different form of voice production. You know, between haka and singing an aria, mm. and um, there's a really tricky moment for myself where where we are 
Is that because your pitch changes? How um, would you describe it? Well, not it? only the pitch, it's the, the roughness on the chords you'd use. You know, right. that sort of, um, a sort of, it's a primal scream, really, the haka. You know, you're mm-hmm. sort of letting it all hang out, and then you've got to come back to Lifting a refined the sound and, yes. and clean and crisp. And yes, great and, onsets <laughs> and, and stand a bit differently. Make sure you're standing right to, to the phrase, you know, you've got enough breath for the phrase to last. So you've been in this, you know, this amazing uh, earthy yeah. posture, and, and all of a sudden, bang, back, straight into stand up, straight, you know. Yeah. God, how exhausting. It, well, it is. It's going, and that's the way to describe it. It's like, it's like going from earthy yes. to ethereal all of a sudden. You know, it's you sort of you are. You do feel a bit sort of like a mixed personality. And do you you know after that, I always <laughs> always before the end of the haka, I I drop out to you know I drop out to let the let the team take over and have to say, mate, you have to guys have to pick it up now because I'm going to drop out and just start getting the the throat clear, you know, because there's a there's a great piece of music coming up that we don't want to miss and don't want to deprive the audience of. So, you know, so there's a, it's a tricky balancing game. It is. It is. Yeah. It's full on. It is full on. Well, in a way, I guess it's, uh, it's, I don't know. It's, it's hopefully what, what we'll achieve here is almost a whole new art form. So when you received the score, what did you think? Send it back. <laughs> Me too. I, I, honestly, in all honesty, having having done a couple of um, of modern operas now, before I even opened it, I was thinking send it back. You know, um, modern opera, New Zealand festival. Uh, you know, they're tagging it as a Maori opera. Here we go again. You know, I, I did think you know it's uh, someone's cashing in on Maori dim again. Um, ah, well said. And uh, well you know, said. I thought um, I thought initially send it back but I did you know I, I opened the book I got a phone call from a conductor who, who was tied up with New Zealand Opera who thought who thought it could be actually you know aside I think it could be a really good project and um, I worked on a, a couple of the numbers and uh, I I couldn't as the as the the piece just with the score by itself, I couldn't quite understand what, what was happening in the story and it wasn't until uh, the director sent me a, the backstory of, of what had happened and what how she intends to tell the story that I could understand more and think, well, this is a story that yeah, does need to be told. If not, um, if not, this is the final and perfect production, then it needs to, it needs to be aired so we get somewhere close to, to what will be a great story for people to see. So let's just go back to what you said earlier about, you know, another Māori. I mean, then it gets to a question of who are these things targeted at? Mm. Because how many Māori do you know actually go to opera? Mm. And, and and is the theatre the right place to be putting this on? Isn't that a political choice in itself? Why shouldn't this be an Māori? You know, again, a subtle sign Mm. that the dominant culture chooses the forum and chooses the the ticket price accordingly because you have to pay a bit of money to go to these theatres. And also, it's an, it can be an alienating yes. place for so many people to go. You've got to dress up. And I know my father would feel incredibly intimidated. Yes. He sometimes, I give him a ticket to my show, you'll turn up for 10 minutes and take off. I'll be singing in the middle of a bar. I'll see him walking out. I think, oh. And I, I try not to get hurt by it anymore because I realise. Yeah, around the ears. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my dad does. But, you know, he grew up in the time when he was cane for speaking Māori. Mm. And I don't blame him for now sitting in there, starting to feel uncomfortable. 
it's probably a lot going on in his head that I don't know what's going on there, and he walks out. Mm. So why isn't this opera targeted for a, a forum where you can encourage Māori to come and see it? And then yeah. let, 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 the, let the people who are non-Māori feel a little bit uncomfortable that they're coming into the marae. Oh, what do we do? Oh, what do we wear? Where do we sit? Is it, are we sitting right? I don't know. There's a lot to be done. Yeah, I, I think there's probably double, a double-edged sword there as well. Yeah. That um, you know that that we take the Maori story to them and and uh, you know say, look, be reminded of of the atrocities you've committed, and um, yep, you know and true. and remember that there is still pain. There is still pain out there, and you know put that shield of ignorance down, mm. and remember there is still pain out there for a lot of people who have who have been hurt in the past. Um, but then doesn't that mean that people can also say, oh, well, this is just an opera? You know, this stays in this realm. I don't actually, I don't actually need to take on any of the fact that that was a true story. Mm. You know, this is art expressing itself. Yeah, well, they're, they're, I mean, that's up to the, to the individual, isn't it? And I guess um, there are... There are going to be people who walk away only talking about the music or only talking about, you know. But um, I think by not providing it, we've achieved nothing. Yeah, well, that's you know, true. So that's true. We've got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, you two could be the knocking down those glass ceilings. Well, I, then, I mean, how do you get into the position of power in these opera companies to be able to make some of these decisions? I mean, the opera company at the moment, I mean, they're the dominant culture that's controlling New Zealand Opera Company. Do they really mm-hmm. understand Māori culture? You know, did they do this opera just because they could get funding? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if, if we're looking at the Treaty of Waitangi as a true partnership, where is the Māori voice within Opera New Zealand? It's time. And probably New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. I'm not sure. They have been doing Māori projects, but a lot of their projects that I've been involved in tends to be... We, I feel like a token. I'm just something stuck onto this fancy flash orchestra. And I go and I do... And I often say to them, hold on, I'm, I'm not a Māori specialist. You're mm-hmm. asking me to do something I don't even specialise in. But you've kind, I'm kind of this bridge between the two cultures because of my opera training. I don't know if I really am really fit to be... But what do you do? If it's not heard, it's not heard. Mm. If I don't do it, uh, tricky. Kia ora kōrua. <laughs> Philip Rhodes and Deborah Kapohe. You're here from Deborah again. She's coming up later on in the programme. I'm Mariah Rakaraku. This is Te Ahika. And if you'd like any information about Te Ahika, you can go onto our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. And don't forget to search Te Ahika on Facebook and click like. You're listening to the sound of Tiahika with Justine Murray and Mariah Rakuraku. It's your boy Taina. Tapu Te Ranga Marae is nestled in Island Bay, Wellington, where at first glance looks like a haphazard collection of buildings. For all you Harry Potter fans, it's been described as Wellington's Hogwarts. When Justine met with founder Bruce Stewart and daughter Putty, she learned it's all been part of a long term plan. Nga Marae o te motu. Kia ora, kia ora, Bruce. Kia ora, koe, uh, uh, no hiakwe, ko waikwe? But I came to Wellington um, in the 50s. I joined uh, a lot of other people because, um, in retrospect, that um, um, 
that all our whenua was taken and we were um, didn't have our resources, so a lot of the people flocked to the cities to um, to just uh, survive, and I was one of them. You're talking about the urban drift, yes, Bruce? yes, very much into part of all that, and and uh, my whole background um, led me to this. I was born in the middle middle thirties, and part of the was the Great Depression, and then went on Second World War. So people were very poor. Uh, what happened? There was there was a dark obligation towards half caste. I, I found that out in looking back on our history, and that backfired on on me because I was I was then in a, a very pro European uh, community and. Um, and uh, we were bottom of the rung. So your mum and dad were Māori and Parker? Yeah, my mum's Māori, uh, my dad Parker. And um, and uh, that backfired. We were the only half Māori family in a uh, Parker community. And, uh, and there were all sorts of things that happened that wouldn't have happened to... Uh, when I was a child, like um, uh, people working the dogs because we were brought up on a backcountry farm. Uh, you lazy Maori dog, I'll beat the effing shit out of you, you bastard. And things like that, or a lazy tractor, a Maori tractor or a Maori horse or mm. Maori house. And so I'm this little kid taking this all in, uh, all body blows and... And um, I was very, very insecure about being a Māori. I remember being taken down with a classroom down to the Marlborough, the Waiau, Wairau they call it, uh, to see the um, uh, a, a big uh, statue there the, called the Wai, 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 Wairau incident where uh, innocent settlers were um, uh, murdered and and we had, I had to watch that and sit back with the class about what happened but I found out years later that wasn't the truth that history wasn't the truth so this had a big impact on me and I ended up in jail As a youth? Uh, no, oh. right on I was very smart, I kept out of jail for a long time I ended up in jail when I was 37 um, uh, and uh, a guy coming to teach us um, uh, haka, it was Amsterdam. Oh, yes, Amsterdam. And uh, it wasn't the fact he was teaching us a haka rua moko, but it was the fact that for the first time I met a Māori who was confident of being Māori. And I wanted what he got. I've always had the ability to change, I've done many things in my life. But suddenly I reach a point where something happens and uh, that was that. was that. I wanted to change. So I started to... I wanted to be Māori. And uh, there was a, an article by Cliff Whiting. The Mudai is my home. The Mudai is my kindergarten to my um, university. The Mudai is my um, museum. It's my church. It's my art gallery. It's where I was born and where I'll be buried. It is also my place of work, my economic base. I bought that. That echoed my Parker um, bringing up. 
uh, that everything was at home. And I, I haven't found anything better. That's 40 years now. So, um, Bruce, in terms of the land, yes. how did you acquire the land? Yeah, the land, we have, we have a very big hunk of land. We're probably one of the biggest hunks of land in, in, uh, in um, Wellington. Uh, uh, we bought most of it off the, um, the sisters, the Home of Compassion. It's 50 acres. That's 50 a acres? big bit of Wellington. So um, I had to pay it off. And uh, there were a lot of people, but when I had to pay it off, uh, there was only me. I had to find five thousand a month for for um, uh, fifteen years, and I had to get out and earn that kind of money. It was real big money, and I had to just because I wanted to set the land free. But I was still owing money, and I was becoming more and more disabled. Nineteen ninety nine, the sisters came over, and they they next door. Said Bruce, uh, uh, we got something to tell you, and I said, tell me now. Wait till the morning. So in the morning, they um they came over, and they said. Uh, we come to had a little prayer just outside here, my fuddy here, and they said we have come to tell you that uh, we're going to forgive you of the debt, so that you can get on with your dream. And uh, one one of the biggest things we done with the funeral was to give, first of all, to to not to own it. Okay. I don't like the word property. Uh, it's a funeral, and we are kaitiaki. And so I gave it all away. I personally owned it. Who did you give it to, Bruce? I set up a trust. Oh, okay. I set up a trust. When we got here, uh, just all the kids came here with me and we didn't know how to set up a marae. We had no idea, you know. I was brought up park. I had no idea. A little book I got out of when I was in jail. Tell who? No, I had another little handbook on tikanga. Oh, and it says, well, you've got to light a fire, you know. Rahika, you Rahika. set up place. And we, there was a Pakeke living down here in Island Bay. Um, right, yeah, Pakeke Duncan, adult. Duncan Hemi. Mm-hmm. Kahangunu. Duncan, he's a, he's a Pakeke. He came up and he uh, had his karakias and cleared the land. And all these years uh, I've been going, um, hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of people, 14,000 a year, Come through our marae. One of the busiest marae in the country. In fact, today you've got um, a couple of groups that were stuck for somewhere to stay that was uh, camping. Yeah, out oh, there we've got, and we've got, got a, a lot of people all the time. Kia ora. <laughs> oh, well, I'm on doing an interview just now. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm just heading off now on the aeroplane. Oh, yes. We're all leaving. Oh, so, yes. But we'll come back and visit when we come back to, okay. back to town. Kia ora. You all right? Okay. Yeah. But so thank you, so oh, grateful for you. Lovely to me. I love to still keep talking to you. Hmm? I still keep talking. I, I really like where you're coming from. Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. We're refugees. <laughs> oh, right, sorry. <laughs> um, visiting Wellington, and oh, wow. Bruce and his family so kindly oh, provided a little bit of accommodation for us. Oh, wow. Um, it's a long story, but we were working on the Hobbit, and we got we got postponed, and we had nowhere to stay for a couple of weeks, and Bruce offered us a place, so. Yeah, come back. Yeah, we'd love to. Okay. We'd love to visit, yeah. But yeah, we'll come back and we hope to bring some apple trees from our home okay. to plant here. But anyway, that'll be next time. Eleven stories is Tapu Teranga Marae. Yeah, and uh, what happened, I read a book called Architecture Without Architects. And I set out with that aim, with two, two basic um, uh, primary uh, mahi. One was food 
and the other was shelter. The two things we need mostly in life. If we can do our own shelter and, and create our own food, uh, we've got the two basic things sorted out. You don't learn that at university. Mm. And that's what we set out to do. Okay, um, Bruce is needed elsewhere. So I'm with his daughter, uh, Putty, and uh, she's taking me f up towards uh, Mahinarangi, the room. As Bruce was saying, Tapu Te Rangamarai is 11 stories, and you can see some pictures on radionewzealand.co.nz forward slash tiahika. So there's paintings of, done by Robin Kahukiwa? Yeah. So the fighter's name is Ukaipono Mahinarangi, and it's basically about female energy, um, female energy and, and sort of the importance of them in our culture. And I guess there was a lot of debate and stuff over that because of women sitting at the back in the porphyry and so and so. So we just wanted to sort of see everyone straight. <laughs> so on the back wall there's um, a huge painting done by Robin Kahukiwa? Yeah, and that's, that's Papa Tuanaku. Papa Tuanaku. Um, she, she's done almost everything in here. Um, also one of the big pieces up there, that, that waka, is done by Diane Prince. Um, or oh, which is probably one of my favourites. It's gorgeous. But, yeah, so, so Robin Koki has done all the arts and, and they all have their own meaning. And, and these ladies on the side, they, so there's eight po on the side and they're all females and they're all holding different things that represent sort of what their name means or what they're about. So the first level is uh, Hiningaro over there, who's intelligence. And she crosses over to Hinewananga, who is self-taught, her own university. Then over here to Hinetoa, who's doing a haka motion to prove his strength. And she crosses over to Hinefanga, who is a follower of her own dreams. And then over here to um, Hinemaiatanga, who is courage. Uh, Hinematauranga over there, who holds the knowledge of the three kite. Over here is Hinetauranga, who's the survivor, and then Hinepukinga, who is the achiever. So these are all sort of levels that a leader has to go through to prove to his or her tribe that she or he can be leader. And so what, what are your sort of daily kaitiakitanga duties um, of tapitiranga? Well, <laughs> Guardian duties. I'm just totally the dishes girl. <laughs> they just put me on the dishes. But um, no, nah, well, yeah, so I live here full time. Basically anything that needs to be done in a day, you just do it and it just goes... It, fits in your day yeah. um, I say if there was a, a, a group coming to stay here today this body would be all prepared and mattresses and beds made And your, your dad Bruce was saying that this is 11 stories we're, are we, we're up the top no this is the 7th 7th <laughs> sorry I'm only saying that because I'm looking towards the roof and all I can see is sky yeah. so I can't it, see it, another 4 it goes that way then up and then yeah. So it's almost <laughs> like, a, um, you know, like stairs, like yeah. how a stair goes and, down. And, and just down. little fuddies put out everywhere. Yeah, every direction. <laughs> yeah. So this is number seven. Yeah. So um, we've got a Māori um, production, Shakespearean um, play we're preparing. Oh, we're going to go this way, buddy. Just going down the stairs. It's almost like a labyrinth, eh? <laughs> You've got to sort of know... <laughs> the mighty version of Hogwarts. Oh, <laughs> who's they? The kids that come here. Hey, Bruce. Hey, come to the car park and they're like, what are we doing at Hogwarts? <laughs> this here, though, this is our Fenwa garden. So uh, we bury our babies' placentas. 
there's placentas sort of spread out through the whole of the, the property, but this is sort of their base. And so we have the sisters from Tuhoi here. So the little one, her name is Henetewai. The middle one, her name is Henetewai, and then the older one is Henepukohurangi. And they're called the Sisters of the Mist. Um, and, and I guess that's why they call themselves the Children of the Mist. They have a strong connection to them. So this, yeah, is our whenua garden. So under each um, native tree we have um, a placenta and the trees are picked by either the parents or they leave it up to us. It really depends on the baby's personality, right? Um, which tree you go for. So we've got Koromiko, we've got this one here which is a kawakawa from the Three Kings Island of the Northern Offshore Islands. And then this one here, right at the far end, is the really nice green one. Um, that's called the Penantia Bailiziana. It's a Māori native, and it's the world's rarest tree. Um, it's lost its Māori name. Hopefully they get it back in at the moment. How did that come to be here? I don't even know. <laughs> I, I don't know how we got our hands on it. I really don't. But but this this certain plant, I guess, needs both male and female species to reproduce, and all there are no more males left. And so um, they're doing, you know, artificial insemination, all of that stuff to bring the tree back and hopefully rename it and give it a Māori name. Oh, yes, so we're in the... De oh, definitely a whare moe. My favourites. This is Parewaka. So Parewaka is my dad's mother's mother. And that's her over there. She married Timirangi Fiuahirini. So she was Ngāti he was Te Arua. Anyway, so this is our, our like, our, our whānau room. Mm. This is where when the fauna comes to because you know this one's it's got a lot of art. You've got um, Darcy Nicholas and John Bevan Ford and so on, but this one's got just pictures of all our fauna, which a lot of the other fairies don't have. So this is where the fauna feels comfortable, and, and it's nice and warm. It is. It's really comfy in here. It is. Yeah. I like this one. It's nice. <laughs> it's probably like about maybe 12 mattresses set up and there's a group staying here, a production, Māori production group. And this marae is obviously kept very warm, um, Pari, in terms of visitors, eh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really the visitors in their body. <laughs> no, um, I mean, around uh, November, December, we start getting a bit slow. And then January, Feb, we're also slow, the year just starts and then March-ish we start to really pick up and then we go into our normal routine year. Mm. So we have an average of about six who you come here a week and it gets pretty full on. Wow. They they go from 10 people to 300 and they go from just staying a few hours to staying three weeks like these ones. But it, it's never fully empty ever. I cannot remember since the day I was born this place ever being completely empty. Oh, good. Yeah. Wow, so these ones. And then and, and in terms of um, the farikai, the kitchen, um, who who cooks? and Because, you know, a big part of staying in marae is the food. So yeah. do the groups self-cater? Um, some of them do. Some of them do. Um, and some of them choose for us to cater. And my mum's my the head chef. She's really good at it, yeah. And then farikai just through there is um, Hinetaino Waitaha. Hine Tainua Waitaha. Yeah. So that's through the whare. We won't go in the farikai, but um, it's basically um, um, standard marae um, farikai. There's a group in there at the moment. So, tapu te ranga marae. 
11 stories. How many stories do you think it will go up to? <laughs> this, it's so unpredictable. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> kitera. Um, kia ora. Ngā marae o te motu. Kia ora, Bruce Stewart and his daughter, Paddy Stewart. Now, there's photos of Tapu Te Ranga Marae. Head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. And in fact, at our website, there's a whole gallery of photographs of different kaupapa that we've covered over the years. Anaira, a Deborah Kapohe with this week's Whakapauki. Kia tūhono te pono me te tika. Uh, so the English is let truth and justice be joined and that, what that says to me is you can have the perception of justice without the truth because the truth can only be uh, arrived at if, if people are allowed to present the facts and what we've had in terms of our history in New Zealand is one side dominating that fact finding process so for Māori when we have truth and justice we will feel like we're well treated we'll feel at peace and we'll be able to feel like we can stand proud and, and get on with our lives now, Justine, you remember the Māori Merchant of Venice, eh? I do, and I remember seeing that movie for the very first time and thinking, wow, it's all in Te Reo Māori, and just the... Thanks to Peter Hurunui Jones. That's right, <laughs> and the level of, it was like the creme de la creme of, of Māori actors, it was amazing. At that time, eh? Yeah, at So time. we were seeing Ngāri Mui Daniels, um, Te well, Whare Huka Wano. And that's really set the template, if I can use that clip before... The ne- this Māori Shakespeare play, um, Trullis and Cressida. That's played as part of the New Zealand International Arts Festival. Over the weekend. Over the weekend. And next week, I'm with a very young cast, Whatanui Flavel, who is Te Ururua Flavel, the Flavel's son. Yep. And a beautiful Māori wahine, Roy Mata Fox. Plus, I talk to the producer, Grace Hoyt. Because they're about to head off to the Shakespeare Festival that's part of the Olympiad Aye. over in London. 37 Shakespeare plays in 37 different languages, and Te Reo Māori is one of them. Woohoo! I'll play. And then next week, I'm also looking at Māori fonts. Hey, mihi tēnē ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Ki ngā kai rā wiki wiki mihini, ngā mihi. Hoki mai hei tērā rā tapu. Mai te whānau a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa. Mauri ora.